uh, Amar Bhattacharya that uh, he will articulate the voice of uh, developing countries in discussing with the World Bank and the IMF. He has also been an advisor to the World Bank on issues of, of poverty. Uh, thank you very much, uh, um, Christina. Thank you uh, also to the Halifax Initiative, uh, the North-South Institute, and other organizers for inviting me here for yet another time. That means that uh, I probably was reasonably constructive last time round, and I shall try to do the same this time. Um, uh, as Christina said, I'm, I'm the director of the Secretariat of the G24, which is an intergovernmental body of finance ministers and central bank governors of the uh, South. Uh, the offices are based in the IMF, but that's it. We are not uh, part of the IMF or the World Bank. I want to make that very clear. Having said that, I also want to say that it's too much of a weight to speak for 24 ministers, so I'm going to speak for myself. Uh, and I want to do that partly to be provocative uh, and partly because I want to reflect on the very interesting discussions we had yesterday and today. And so I was upstairs for a little while actually modifying in some sense some of my, because I, I would like to give, put some, uh, some thoughts uh, for, your, you know, for your deliberations and, and, and going forward. Now, I really like the title of the seminar. I think it's excellent because it's, you know, this is exactly the time to ask you know, where the gaps are, what's missing. But let me, let me start immediately by being provocative and say that you can only identify what's missing if you have a very good idea about what has already been done. And as, some, as was pointed out, and I thought Chuck Friedman did a very good job in terms of putting some of the issues on the table. But I think it's also very important to understand what has been deliberated in the G20, what has been deliberated in the IMF, what's been deliberated in the Financial Stability Board, because that'll give you good ammunition to assess whether what's been done is correct, but also where, what's the way forward. And in the way forward, it's not enough to think about what's missing. It's important to also think, think about the incomplete agenda a lot of what is important is the implementation of what has been agreed upon. It's not what's missing, but it's actually follow through on agenda as actions that have been committed to. So I really see this in three parts, what has been done, what remains to be done, and what is missing on the agenda. And that's the way I want to structure my remarks. And I will focus particularly on the issues of IFI reform because that's what's nearest and dearest to my heart. Um, in thinking about these three dimensions, it's useful perhaps to separate out policy actions, substantive actions that need to be taken from the institutional arrangements and the governance of the system. And let me start with the policy actions. There are three areas where policy actions have been initiated. Again, as Chuck Friedman pointed out, First of all, curbing the spread and impact of the crisis. Second, the crisis is not over, so how do you move from, crisis, from dealing with the crisis as is to sustain recovery? And the third area of action is regulation of financial markets. And let me very quickly, and I, you know, these are all be in the presentation that's available to you, just give you a quick, quick snapshot, not of what Chuck Friedman said about what needs to be done, but what's on the agenda right now as far as the official sector is concerned. Now, 
on the curbing the spread and impact of the crisis, there is absolutely no doubt that we had an unprecedented set of macroeconomic actions. As the G20 notes in its communique, it's the largest and most coordinated fiscal and monetary stimulus ever. You know, what was done in the Great Depression pales in comparison to what has been done right now. Now, in contrast to the macroeconomic measures, the measures with respect to the financial sector, as Chuck pointed out, have been quite varied. They have, very, they have been from one extreme of almost complete nationalization to rather weak responses in some of the countries. But nevertheless, they have been successful in turning the financial sector around. As I sometimes say, it's easy for an idiot to make money if money is provided at zero interest rates. And that's what you know, has happened in the financial system. Banks have turned in significant profits because they have had unlimited access to money. And the most uh, you know, gambling of them have used it for their trading books. JP Morgan turned in 82 cents per share profits, which is higher than ever. Why? Because they made a huge amount of money on their proprietary trading book. In contrast, Citibank, which tried to do all things by the book of top, etc., still continues to have a loss. So the world we are in still is it pays better to be a gambler than to be a banker. So we're still in some sense in the old world in that regard. The third thing I want to point out is that the larger emerging markets have not only undertaken major stimulus packages, but un, you know, it's not very well known, but almost all of them used quite interesting heterodox measures in this crisis. You know, countries like China, India, Brazil. You know, one of the things that Brazil did is it used its public banks to expand credit by 40%, where, where, while the private banks were able to do nothing. So the, the fact that Brazil had these powerful public banks as part of its arsenal made a big, big difference. Colombia, for example, reduced value-added taxes on and parts of activity. There were, you know, equivalent of uh, Brazil intervened, for example, in auto sales in a big way. Lots of things that were done that didn't weren't by the book and certainly not by the Washington consensus. And the last thing is there has been stepped-up support from the IFIs, in particular from the IMF and the World Bank and the regional development banks. But it was of an order of magnitude which was much smaller. And the poorest countries got the most disproportionate support in terms of, of the magnitude of support. Low-income countries got the least amount of financing compared. So you know, and you saw that table in Jomo's presentation yesterday. The second part is from crisis to recovery. The crisis is not over. And I think it's fair to say, and coming back to this issue of ethics, you know, there has been an overwhelming concern from the leaders such as Gordon Brown and Obama with unemployment and the fact that this is a jobless recovery. There has been overwhelming concern that there needs to be actions above and beyond macroeconomic measures to stimulate jobs. And so in some sense, it's not all been, in some sense, you know, uh, we, are not, we are only concerned about growth. There's another aspect, which is 
Everything has been in the public sector. Private demand has not really yet picked up, and the downside risks remain large. We heard yesterday about the trade-offs and exit strategies. I don't want to spend too much time on it. But what's also important coming out of the G20 is that there is now a compact, which the countries have committed to, on strong, sustainable, and balanced growth. What does that mean? That means basically we will see much more demand coming from the emerging markets, much more discipline in the United States, much greater emphasis on structural reforms in Europe, and all of this is underpinned by a process of mutual assessment. And that's a very positive step. Um, on the regulation of financial markets, one of the things that I can absolutely tell you is we are no longer in a world of unfettered finance. The chains may not be as strong as we would like, but when you go down to what has been discussed and what has been committed to, it is mind-boggling compared to where we were a year ago in thinking about finance and where we have been in these past 15 years. I'm not going to go through all this. I have put it here for you to, to but I can, you know, for those of us who study the detail of it, it's actually very impressive what has been committed to. New and higher standards of prudential regulation in every regard, including, for example, on the kind of risk and propriety trading that we've been talking about. Corporate governance and regulation, including on compensation. What the Financial Stability Board has committed to in its guidelines on compensation is in some sense you know, really a sea change from what was there before. Okay? And I, I urge all of you to take a look at it, because in some sense, if those things had been in place in the 1990s and implemented, we wouldn't be where we are right now. Third, the perimeters of regulation. Big debates about whether hedge funds should be regulated, what to do about credit agencies, what to do about derivatives. Lot of commitments made on this. Finally, on this coherent, effective national cross-border supervision and crisis management, colleges of supervisors have been established, mechanisms of information exchange, host uh, uh, and home country regulations clarified, and all of this will be based on a peer review process. Tiff Macklem has been made in charge of the standing committee of the Financial Stability Board on implementation of standards. And every G20 country has committed to be subject to that peer review process. There will also be a review of overall standards taken in 2010. Does that mean that everything is done? Absolutely no. Does it mean that there won't be slip between uh, cup and lip? The answer is absolutely yes. And let me tell you where the Achilles heel on all of these reforms stand. And I'm unequivocal about it, it lies in the US Congress. I mean, you look at what the United Kingdom has committed to, despite the fact that it is a financial center, and you have to be impressed with regard to compensation, with regard to what intervention in the banking system, with regard to changes on capital uh, and disclosure, et cetera. But in the US, just like in the case of health reform, everywhere there is dilution. And so the place where I think a lot of attention has to be put and a lot of accountability has to be put is the discussions that take place now in the US. But I should also say that the US administration has been extremely vigorous part of this peer review process and pushing the boundaries of change. 
So it's an interesting situation right now we are in on the regulation of financial markets. Very quickly, you know, listening to the debate here and giving my own views, let me summarize what I would call the missing or less addressed elements of the reform agenda. The first, as the previous session talked about, is the legacy of debt and the lack of debt restructuring mechanism. And let me put it like this. Every category of country other than China will see an increase in indebtedness of very significant proportions. And even for the Chinese, at least they will not be building up the surplus as large. The industrial countries will see a huge increase in their debt. There are many emerging, I mean, market countries, particularly, you know, middle-income small countries, which already had a high legacy of debt, and they will be very constrained. For example, Jamaica. Third, the low-income countries are being encouraged to borrow more. And, you know, I think that's not a bad idea if they can afford it, but one has to worry about the legacy of debt on them. So this is going to be a big issue. Then there is the lack of a debt restructuring mechanism, and I come to that separately. We talked yesterday about capital account liberalization and management. It's a pet subject of mine, but I will leave it to question and answer. We need adequate mechanisms for crisis prevention and crisis response. What do I mean? The IMF has put in place something called a flexible credit line. But you have to be virtuous of the virtuous to be eligible for it. You had three countries that have so far been declared eligible for this flexible credit line. But these are not the three countries that need even precautionary financing the most. So you need a broad-based, more automatic precautionary financing of the kind that Roy talked about. And you need it not only for the middle-income countries, you also need it for the low-income countries. The second thing, the next thing I would say is you really need to reform the development finance architecture beyond the crisis, something I will come to. We talked about reform of the global reserve system. One of the things that the G20 was unable to deal with is climate finance and climate change. You know, the, all the right noises were made, but nothing really substantive came out of the G20 on this issue. Now, part of the problem is the polarization between the discussions in the UN and the discussions in the finance minister's process. But the reality right now is we do not have an architecture for climate finance. And the final point I want to make is in a world of globalized finance, the problems and challenges of equity loom large. Why is that? As we discussed, globalized finance exacerbates inequity. Not only do we have excess profits in the financial sector, but those profits are concentrated. In the United States, in the last 30 years, 70% of the income that has been incrementally generated has accrued to 1% of the population. Okay? Now, it's not as bad in other countries, but part of the reason for that exacerbation of inequality is the role of finance and financial markets. Second, think about the damage that financial crises do in the developing world. People talk about the IMF bailing out countries. The IMF never bails out any countries. Who gets left behind carrying the debt 
in terms of the so-called bailout of the IMF. It's the innocent taxpayers, and it's particularly the poor because the wealthy get their money out. So globalized finance is a very, very, not only in terms of instability, as was talking, talked about, but it raises some important questions with regard to equity. Okay, let me just talk very quickly about the governance and institutional reform. Three, I mean, there's no doubt that this crisis has really been a driver for discussion on, on governance reform. You know, the, we, for, I, I mean, I've been part of some of the conversations with Paul Martin and others in terms of the G20 at leaders process, and we were debating and debating and debating. This crisis comes along, and within you know, a matter of weeks, you know, we had a leaders process, something we couldn't get in a process of years. So it had a huge impact in terms of, this, of, the, of the global governance. John Sinclair explained it you know, very, very uh, effectively in my view. Let me just make two points. One is this, this thing about L20 versus Global Economic Cooperation Council. You know, one can be a segue to the other, but the more immediate challenge is the challenge of inclusion for the L20. My personal view is the biggest missing gap in the L20 is the representation of sub-Saharan Africa. And if that was pursued, then it would make, on a structured basis, it would make a big difference. The second is, you know, why can't these individual countries also act as regional ambassadors? The way that Brazil acts in the IMF board as a head of a constituency and the way it acts in the G20 are completely different. It's very important, therefore, that there be much more consultation. Second, at the level of finance ministers, we have a tension between the G20 and the IMFC and the Development Committee. Again, you don't have to have one or the other, but there needs to be, again, a better bringing in of the consultative process. Now, here I have a very, very specific plug to put. Our current chair is Brazil, and Minister Mantega has said, the G24 was established in 1971 as a grouping of developing country finance ministers and central bank governors. It makes absolutely no sense that the G24 doesn't have a standing chair in the G20, whereas in the case of Europe, not only do you have all the old Europeans, but now you have Spain, you have Netherlands, you have the European presidency, you have the European Central Bank, and you have the European Commission. So, what better than having the G24 in the finance minister's process being a conduit of voice? After all, we have eight African countries. We have a lot of middle-tier countries. So that issue is something that we are going to put on the agenda, and we would really welcome support from civil society to get better inclusion of developing country voice in the G20 process. I'm going to spend most of my time on the reform of the IFIs. I am less negative on the FSB than in some sense some of the previous speakers have been. Uh, the FSP has been broadened, but again, like the G20, there is scope to make it more inclusive in process. I have been talking about this to the FSB. For example, I think they should have regional outreaches. They should work much more closely with, uh, with groupings like the G24. But the professional work of the FSB, in my view, as just as a fly on the wall, is first rate. And then we all talked about the importance of regional, institutional, and financial arrangements. Uh, 
Madam Chair, could I have a few minutes on the two most important issues to me? I'll take one slide, I mean, I'll just take uh, two minutes each, but I think they are very important for this group to hear. Because with all of the high issues that we discussed, some of the biggest battles over the next six months and year when, when Canada is in the, in the, in the hot seat vis-a-vis -vis the G, G8, G7, and the G20 will be with regard to IMF and World Bank reform. Now, this crisis brought the IMF and World Bank back from the land of the dead. There's no doubt about that. But as Roy pointed out, this is not a time to say, you know, they cannot be reformed. This is a time to say what reforms are needed in using this opportunity of the crisis for fundamental change. Now, I've listed for the IMF what we are pushing for. I mean, one of the things is on surveillance, which is so-called candid, even-handed, and effective surveillance. From Pittsburgh to Istanbul, the IMF was given certain roles, which are really quite important. And I urge all of you to look at the two communiques, and you will see the IMF is being given a role. But our concern remains on this principle of even-handedness. It's a very important point. Second, as Roy pointed out, we need more enhanced and more automatic support for low-income countries in the face of shocks. As I said, we need broad-based precautionary financing to counter excessive self-insurance. And therefore, you need at least a doubling of quotas. Now, in the G20 communique, you will see no mention of this. In the IMFC communique, you will see vague mention of this. Why? Because there are many, I call them the coalition of the unwilling, who are unprepared to see a very significant increase in the size of the fund because they see it as a threat to their voting power. So it's extremely important for civil society to say, no, the fund is a quota-based institution, and we support a doubling in quotas, not some backdoor ways of dealing with governance, such as the new arrangements to borrow, which is a point that Joe Marie was making. Second, you need a credible shift in voting power. Now, on this one, the United States pushed for 5%, and that's what the G20 agreed upon, but it's a minimum of 5%. We in the G24 have said it should be about 7%. But regardless of what number it is, there's a question from whom to whom on the basis of what criteria. And the quota formula right now that is in place is reads like chapters from the lurid tales. And since I don't have time, I will save that for question and answers in terms of any chapter that you wish as to why it doesn't make sense. We need an open, competitive, merit-based selection process for the heads of the institution. There is a commitment in the G20 that this will be done. Interestingly, there is no such reference for the World Bank. Again, I, I think it's very important to read these communiques in terms of what has a political positions that are embedded in them, so I'm, I'm just disclosing to you some of the nuances. There's, we talked about the modification of the decision rules, not only a double majority, but also thresholds. We can talk about that more. We talked about, we didn't talk too much about the composition and corporate governance of the board. And then finally, there's greater ministerial involvement and IMFC reform. I mean, whereas, the IMF reform has gotten a lot of attention. 
The part of the story that has not received attention is the World Bank and the MDB system. And that's very unfortunate. It's very unfortunate because in this crisis, actually the MDB system was much more rationed in what it could do. It's also unfortunate because the world after this crisis will remain a very difficult world for the developing world. And there needs to be a better balance between public and private financing if we are to avoid crises and we are to produce financing in a world where taxpayers don't have that much money. Third, the whole challenge of global public goods, you are not going to be able to solve it through just carbon taxes, I mean carbon finance, you're not going to be able to solve it just through public grant money. The MDB system is an ex extremely effective way of mobilizing market finance for climate change. But it doesn't have the legitimacy to get the mandate. And it all therefore goes centrally to the issues of governance of the World Bank. And what is extraordinary today is that the level of ambition on governance reform for the World Bank as a development institution is less than that for the fund. Now, I'm not going to go through my slides. I'm just going to show you a couple things that are interesting. This is a table of what the MDB financing has been over the last 20 years compared to concessional financing and compared to private capital flows. The yellow line is private capital flows. The red line, and yes, it is close to zero over 20 years, is the net financing from the MDBs and other uh, multilateral institutions to the developing world. They have precisely produced zero. Okay, so I, I think the time has come, and part of the reason, very honestly, I'll be very blunt with you, is yourselves. I mean, the fact that we have, in some sense, not gotten a shared vision of what the system is about, what kind, you know, I mean, every time we wrap the World Bank and the MDBs in yet more safeguards, yet more rules determined by the North, why shouldn't parliaments in the South determine what this money is used for? Why should it be that it should be determined by bureaucrats in Washington or by northern governments or even northern NGOs? So I'm, I'm, you know, I want to be fairly provocative on this point that you really, this time has come to really rethink the system. Otherwise, and I think it is entirely appropriate, we should be thinking of a real bank for the South. Let me give you a very, very simple. One minute. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. So let me let me end with that. I apologize. Uh, like Chuck Friedman, this is a, a presentation that has many. So I'm going to close here, and uh, I, I apologize for taking time from my fellow panelists.